0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to our first episode of 2023. This is the renowned podcast, and we are your co-hosts, Allison Hager
1: and Mark Schultz.
0: As a reminder, renowned is a podcast for the curious, we dust off the commonplace to look for new relevance as we challenge ourselves to think critically about the objects that surround us, how they echo our past, reflect the present or foreshadow the future. So, Mark. Why don't we jump right in? Yes, What's our noun do it. for today?
1: Absolutely. Our noun was or is writer. W R I T E R, writer. I'm doing that Excellent. spelling bee thing again.
0: <laughs> I love <laughs> the spelling just... bee thing. <laughs> I love it. And you yeah, never know. I love it. It's and it's always good to clarify.
1: Back in the saddle, 2023. It's going to be good. So, yeah, yeah, and a
0: quick That's note, good. I know we've been on a bit of a hiatus, so thank you everyone for your patience. Of course, we had the holidays, um, and as Mark mentioned in our um, holiday Happy New Year message, Uh, I was traveling for a while and Mark is a new pet owner, so we're a little busy. And then unfortunately I got um, ill. I am fine now, but I had a lingering cough that kind of, um, you know, meant that we couldn't record for a while. So thank you for your patience, but uh, February, we are back in the saddle. Uh, So Mark, shall we roll our die and see who kicks off?
1: Absolutely. Oh, I have a six. And a one. Ooh.
0: All right, polarized,
1: polar up Mark
0: is taking us away.
1: All right, uh, cool. If you can give me my, my fifteen seconds on the clock, I'm going to set up for when we do yours. All right, perfect. All
0: right, so ready and
1: go. A writer is one who writes, and the act of writing of leaving a record of a thought of. Someone's existence comes to life perhaps most controversially when that writer is a graffiti artist.
0: Ooh, and you had like one second left. Uh oh, that's so interesting. I we definitely did not go the same direction. And I'm really, really intrigued by this. And I I think as we briefly mentioned when we got this noun, um, this one was so broad that we were wondering kind of where we'd go. That's fantastic. Okay.
1: Excellent. All right. 15 seconds on the clock for you instead and hit it
0: so for today's episode i've basically written a love letter
1: nine seconds left that's wow it. interesting take certainly creative Excited.
0: and very vague okay. and very
1: vague i guess i'm sure it gives you no idea what i'm actually going to be talking about oh. that's how much time you had left
0: Fantastic. (laughs) All right, Mark, bring us into this fascinating world.
1: Yes, of course. Um, Okay, so as always, I started going down my rabbit hole by basing for me, where's this word come from? Especially with something like writer, which I think you're going to see is where it's why I ended up going where I did. Um, So one who writes, dash E-R. And it dawned on me, it's funny, right? We had a problem with gerund, right? When in the the history of this, um, why am I blanking on the word Uh, shopping? Uh, And when we, you know, tussled with that and decided, all right, we're probably not going to do, you know, gerunds anymore, but maybe whatever coming into this, I realized, well, you know, here we are with what's called, and I did not know this before looking it up an an agentive, agentive noun uh, or an agent noun probably pronounced agentive perhaps, um, but an agent noun, something that, uh, takes that E R suffix that we have in English and, and creates a noun from right. Right. So that's not entirely different than taking yeah. one and having an ING. Um, so I don't know that crossed my mind as, as something interesting, but I do think it shows how action oriented our language is and understandably. So I think as language was, was evolving. So a little nerd, uh, segue there. Uh, but, Okay, so digging a little further into that, nominalization, nominalization is the use of a non-noun as a noun. Uh, So sometimes this is done just with, you know, uh, an inflection change for us, but sometimes it's what they called uh, a a morphological change. For example, that gerund ending that we were just talking about, or this agentive or agentive, uh, E-R, it creates a morph. Uh, Hungarian uses the present tense form of a conjugation, uh, for example, and Kazi, a language spoken largely in the state of India, uses prefixes, right? So it's not always um, this er, right? a, a suffix, something like Kazi actually can use a prefix to do sort of the, the, the same morphological thing, which I thought was kind of cool. Um, the words for right uh in most indo-european languages originally meant carve or scratch or cut and that becomes relevant for what I'm going to talk about a little bit later um, with graffiti because you also have things in Greek Greek like graphene uh, or in Latin it's scribere, but um, the the Italian form of that which is very related to the Greek uh, becomes the foundation for kind of where I where I decided to head so, Where I found my direction was digging a little bit more into that and using uh, the Oxford English Dictionary. You know, I think we both coming into this, you mentioned it's such a broad term. Where are we going to sort of hook ourselves in and and find a direction? And when I came to the long list of writer and definitions and so on, the slang originally in the U.S. is a person who writes or paints graffiti uh, is a writer uh, and as a form of street art or graffiti artist often modifying the word indicating where the graffiti is written by actually, you know, um saying it's a subway writer or it's a train writer and that I think is something that we don't hear so much anymore in popular culture but in the 70s, late 60s and 70s when this became an american thing, um you started to have those distinctions of the writers which now I think we would think of as like a tag artist or a, gra- a graffiti artist or something like that. Mm. So, yeah, that for me is a little bit of a hot button issue that I can see in a couple ways. I think Allison probably knowing me well enough might've already felt that coming. Uh, and so that's, I think why I was attracted to digging into it a little bit more because I wanted to sort of explore and challenge myself on, on what I know about it. And um, if I can do a little bit more critical thinking about it than than I have in the past. So starting as I often do with some trivia to get us, Got our juices flowing here and our brains going. So audience, please play along as uh, I ask Allison this question. So the first instances of graffiti were recorded, A, by prisoners of war in the 1700s, B, in Rome and Pompeii in the first century, or C, in China during the Han Dynasty.
0: I feel like everything starts in China, but... I'm going to go with Pompeii only because I've been there. And so many things I saw there, I was like, things don't change. All this stuff that we do, they did. So uh, the You're answer? absolutely right.
1: Yes. Yes. Yep. Rome and Pompeii was the, was the first, you know, the recorded of it. Um, it right, right. Been around, but yeah, that, that's excellent. And what's interesting is the term graffiti, as I just mentioned before, talking about the background is an Italian word itself. Um, so makes sense uh, that Rome and Pompeii would be, you know, some of the first places that, it's recorded the term graffiti the word itself i I think we may not realize this as someone who has studied italian over the last few years it jumped out at me right away that is a plural Um, et ending in an i is a plural um ending for for noun Uh, so it's a plural of the word graffito uh, which is the past tense of the verb graffiare, which is to scratch um so that background is like to scratch or to, to sort of scribble. And I just love that again, because it connects us to art history. If you're going all the way back, right? We were probably first scratching so many things I read on graffiti brings up, you know, as a historical foundation, cavemen, of course, cave women being like scratching, you know, leaving their mark literally or trying to capture something on cave walls. Uh, So that, that impulse in our, in our nature has, has carried through, but become quite a controversial and sort of hot button topic uh, in, in many ways. So why is it a hot button topic? Um, You know, I think the obvious thing for anyone is it, although, you know, I say obvious, but in our age demographic, uh, Alison, we may be thinking of it uh, where it was more of a hated sort of thing. Part of what I mean, my story and what I got into and reminded was reminded of in my research was that it has really transitioned into mainstream. um, And I'll talk a little bit about why in a second. But it's not, you know, I would think kids that are born since the since year 2000, graffiti is not such a transgression. I would bet. And it's seen in designs in pop culture. It's seen as high art. And sometimes it's seen in NFT stylings now with like the very latest in blockchain type of stuff. Um, So I, I think it'd be very different than, say, us growing up and what we inherited as a way of viewing it from our parents, et cetera, I think would be very different.
0: Can I tell you a quick, funny story that ties into what you're saying, just in terms of people's um, maybe of different ages or experiences? So a number of years ago, I'm going to say five. I'm not sure that's exactly right. I took a trip to Greece with some friends um, who, you know, Mark, and uh, I was in charge of the Athens portion of the trip of finding the Airbnb for us. So I had found this apartment and we uh, we'd spent uh, some time out on Santorini and then we flew back to Athens and we took the subway into the city or the train of the city and then took the subway to the neighborhood that we were staying in. And then we had to walk, let's say, 10 blocks to the apartment. And as we're walking, as we're getting closer to the apartment, there was just more and more graffiti like we're in a neighborhood we're not in like a touristy area right and there's more and more graffiti and i can feel the stress from my travel buddies right for other people i can just feel it and i'm thinking oh they're hating me right now for picking this place and they're they're thinking this is unsafe like i don't know if it's safe or not either but like i am going to right walking right. like i mean it and we turn the corner and the door to the apartment building is literally just covered in graffiti and i'm thinking Ooh. <sighs> And so we go in and an older gentleman meets us and shows us the apartment. It is stunning. It's right across the street from the, um, archaeology museum. It is this incredibly beautiful apartment and the neighborhood was perfectly fine and safe. Um, but it was just a thing. It's a thing that in Athens, I guess has really exploded. And we found out, um, a couple of days later going to the coffee shop, which was just downstairs and around the corner, I walked out and there were some kids graffitiing the wall in broad daylight. And we found out, I was talking to the owner. They actually like businesses will pay kids to do it. To like create art, Very so to your point, yeah. there's been maybe sort of a change, at least in some cultures, about how it's viewed.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I'm glad you mentioned that, and it echoes things that I saw differentiating and, and contrasting European use of it and, and how it sort of propagated and become part of the culture more than here and and how it's viewed. Um, ah, that's fascinating. Perfect. I'm glad you shared that. I'm really glad you shared that. Um, so. Yeah, I, I mean exactly. On that note, um, rather than illicit vandalism and seen as a defacement, some others see it exactly as you just ex- described by some of those owners as an artistic expression um, of those who really have no other voice or those who lack adequate representation in other public channels or ways to channel, huh, uh, energy and and perhaps boredom or you know for those that lack the means to do other things honestly, if you don't have money in your pocket to go do other activities, uh, I think it can be very uh, different experience. And so you you gravitate towards the outdoors and to sort of leaving your mark kind of literally on, on things. Mm -hmm. Um, In doing this research, I try to put a little mirror up to myself and shake myself out of, you know, I, I think you, you start to just get ascribe your own reality and your own level of of day-to-day comfort to to everyone else in in, in an easy way Um, and that's i think a little bit of a trap because the way that i can view graffiti and and how i spend my time i have the very lucky leisure to spend money to do kind of anything i want right and and so there isn't that lack of private space i have i live alone right there isn't a lack of being able to go do something that would be expressive or to pay to spend time doing something where the tools you need to do it are very expensive Mm -hmm. you know what i mean um you know i buy an ipad to do cartooning rather you know those that don't have that option i can see back in the 60s and 70s in the u.s this you know explain some of the background i believe it was in philadelphia or that area but and spread quickly through inner cities it's it started with really any paint and permanent markers. Right. And then spray paint became a thing and it sort of evolved into other, other types of media. Um, but still has stayed, you know, kind of true to that very inexpensive, you could almost find it around at junkyards, you know, like that kind of stuff. Um, so with that being said, although I have opened myself up to it, I do, if I'm bringing my opinion into it, as I, as we go through this and I, I, I struggle with whether or not to do that i know our big questions are, are about that but i do want to start out with why i do hate it like i, I hate it when i and what's interesting is i think i hate it when it is what it truly is supposed to be which is like this rebellious transgressive act that is illegal um versus where it's grown into popular culture and been celebrated and well we'll talk a little bit about that but for example in my neighborhood coming out of you know Now coming out of COVID, having things be much more normal from what they were, I noticed, I see signs in the city of when no one was around as much. And I see that graffiti has permeated. It's sort of like invaded and, and it almost feels a little like, if I'm not overreacting, it's a little of, hmm, we carve out this safe space. So to speak, if that, if it's safe, like, I I don't want to make it polarizing. Right. But it feels like there's this element of, is it safety? Is it crime? Is because the crime did rise in the city and et cetera. And it feels like it just encroaches because there's, there are massive tags in my neighborhood that were never there before and no one's taking them down. And I almost feel like that's the reason why I kind of hate it. I was like, I hate the fact that it happened, but I also hate the fact that no one's taken it down. Like, why are you not cleaning your building? Like that kind of thing. Um, I think
0: this is interesting, Mark. And I know this is what you're questioning yourself on. So this isn't a criticism, but it's really interesting to me because the other way to view it, of course, which you're really, you're you're touching on is um, where does this come from, this kind of fear? Because in a lot of cases, like these are kids. I mean, think about having nothing to do during COVID, being a teenager in the city, like losing your mind especially if you're from yep. a low resource environment you're going out to tag it doesn't mean that you are a threat and it doesn't mean that you are like a danger to others and then yet yeah, that is the way a lot of minds go so it is i think right. it's really a relevant thing you're talking about and i applaud you for like kind of questioning yourself on it
1: yeah I, because I, I i do sit right on the fence of it because i realize that i might be seeing it in a way that's a little antiquated a little not backed up with some data but there's other data back when i was i was a psych minor in college that did explore the idea of a drop in crime rates in certain cities when things like broken windows were immediately fixed when when the city spent time immediately fixing transgressive things that happened so that the space that was being carved out didn't didn't welcome further further acts of transgression and crime does that make sense like if if something gets broken fix it if something's tagged fix it so i think the returning. classic
0: example is actually the subways in the 1980s yeah and the um all how cars would be completely graffitied and then they would paint them over every day and then like i think that is the classic example of what you're talking yeah.
1: about but anyone hearing this you might know If that research has been updated, we'd love to hear from you on on social media or through our website, just because that was what I studied, you know, 20 something years ago in college. I think probably research has been done that has challenged that, that it, to your point, it can be a lot more innocuous and and some people view it. We're going to get into this a little bit. as a positive thing, I think why those owners in was it Italy you mentioned? It was um, in Athens,
0: in Greece. Athens,
1: sorry, in Greece might have been welcoming it is because it, it's, it's a, mm, is it like legalizing certain drugs? It, it's it's sort of accepting it and therefore taking that true and progressive act away, but still leaving it as an expression. Um, right. I think it
0: and celebrating it, the beautiful part of it, like celebrating it as art, adding that like. Flipping the lens a little bit.
1: Right. Yes. I still struggle with that because I see yeah.
0: it. Ah, yeah.
1: All right. Well, to, to keep going. Sorry, audience. Um, get back to my my rabbit hole here. But I think all relevant and things that, you know, bleed through to our big questions later for sure. So the uh a lot of the research that was done before what I was particularly looking at framed this act as like an unsanctioned communication often practiced by young people <laughs> just that sounds very stodgy sure probably was um and, and that i think has been the classic way of looking at it the research that i was looking at they tried to challenge themselves and, and dig into the a deeper story behind it so there was a this research conducted uh, in the Portuguese capital of Lisbon between the years of 2004 and 2007. And so what I was reading, uh, one of the sources that I was read, um, in the past few weeks was this study to, to look into it. So they came out of it saying it's a discursive device forged in the, the context of symbolic struggles related to a field of visibility. So not just bored teens, but teens in our culture which is becoming more and more visually expressive in media in promotion and advertising in technology in the permeation of visual things in terms of i mean if you think back in human history right movies are not that old tv is not that old therefore music videos are not that old ads online like we see so much more stuff to be honest then I think human history has the past and so part of what they're saying is that this idea of the visual of being seen and how you represent yourself in certain spaces gets much more amped up and embraced by younger people who literally are looking for a way to be seen but also like this discursive device something that wants to start a discourse that wants to somehow say something um so, that, I think, starts to lend itself a bit more integrity, I think, where you're probably your streak, Allison, as I sense being like, what is it about why they need to do it? What is it about Right, uh, the human desire? People don't oft do transgressive things unless there's sort of a need to or an a important drive. Um, so that aesthetic drive, we think of that imperative, is, is sort of driving the youth to do it. So for... for consideration the authors you know attribute the success of graffiti um as an expressive form because of two trends right that heightened aestheticization of our day-to-day so not just the the visual that i talked about but that things need to have a certain aesthetic that they're almost branded we even have that that slang term right now that's so on brand or you're being on brand right we're sort of a, a and in just doing that, you're embracing marketing, right? And the influence of promotions and advertisements in the world and, and the use of, of what is externally sort of used to represent you. Okay. Um, one little quote here from something, a direct quote says, studies focusing on youth and urban space suggest that quote, the space of the street is often the only autonomous space That young people are able to carve out for themselves so i mentioned before right when i was thinking of my own day-to-day i i live alone there are instances where somebody can't be on their own um and they also can't have their own place to to express themselves so this becomes that for many so hanging around larking about on the streets and parks and shopping malls well, if shopping malls is so this is sounding anymore,
0: very west side story to me
1: uh right uh is one form of youth resistance conscious and unconscious to adult power um okay so graffiti has also become ingrained as an extension um and um, of the musical style but also the lifestyle of hip-hop and I didn't quite know it was as formal as this. So just to mention, in the 1980s, certainly when graffiti, I think, right, the the, the subway, as you mentioned, Allison, sort of the height of graffiti culture, I think, hitting the mainstream and and being seen as such a issue uh, in New York. Hip hop had four pillars: mix mastering, which is basically right the the, the production and the mastering of, of of music and samples and things like that. An MC, which would be the, the largely the person rapping or or singing or being the the talent so to speak but graffiti and breakdancing these are four pillars that i didn't realize were so part of hip-hop so that doesn't surprise me then that it wasn't like the 1980s were because of a massive rise in crime it was built into a hip-hop style that was exploding and if it was a formal part of it then i can see that its proliferation would be so much more explained to me right like just the fact that i read that a couple of days ago was like oh that that to me makes more sense why it was suddenly everywhere, right? Cuz you know, kids especially are, are just going to take on they're still doing it anything that is linked to a band or a movement or the other people or the other kids their age are doing and it's it becomes something to rally behind that's different. Of course. However, the act of leaving a mark on architecture or other structures, right, in the public sphere, uh, sort of hardly started with rebellious youth in the 60s. Uh, historians have found you know victorian practices were, were were all about visiting tourist locations and etching something you know their name or initials into these pieces and so even when i've been traveling in certain areas of the world where i'll be incensed that somebody carved initials into something that now we have such reverence for I'm like what um it was somewhere uh, in england when i was viewing the magna carta and there were at et- like graffiti right etchings from uh, soldiers i think in the 1700s that just like left you know, on things that now are <laughs> important to us it's, it's crazy uh anyway but also areas you know where the vikings raided and plundered they did the same thing uh but it isn't just european it remains from ancient mesoamerican civilizations also have um uh, these ancient civilizations had the same types of of things happening so there appears to be this human need to leave a mark something Mm -hmm. behind as a signifier either that they were there or perhaps they were saying this is an important space i i want to mark it i want to make it better it might not be only about remembering that that they were there i think it's interesting so trivia number two uh true or false there is a federal law prohibiting graffiti on city buildings False. It's false. Uh, there is only a federal law prohibiting vandalism of railroads. And Interesting. From what I was seeing, it is it's more safety related to prevent trespassing. So mm-hmm. when I read safety related, either for the person trespassing who might be out there who might get killed because uh, necessarily they could derail a train, but like more often they're just going to get killed. Um, but yeah, apparently that that is that is the only federal. Federal thing, which I I, I guess kind of makes sense. I want to go back and find out when that was written because I'm picturing like, is it railroads from back, you know, steam? Right. But no, I don't think we were doing any vandalism at the time, I don't know. So uh, there is a distinction being... Uh, made now between traditional graffiti and street art i think alison you and i've been sort of hitting on it the differences not only in how to view it but also how it's proliferated and become quote-unquote popular Uh, so more and more graffiti is being accepted in many circles as an acceptable aesthetic and thereby entering into the into the realm of of street art and elevated art i actually read there's a lot of debate still though that even when that happens it can be white male dominated when it becomes about the graffiti breaking through to be something viewed in museums or sold for a lot of money. There's still Tucker. a different right? A difference, exactly. Um, another issue is how many of those people not just being probably white and and uh, male but also have they done quote unquote enough street time time where it's it's actually from the culture of those um the folks that have no other public space or have no resources to express in other ways or don't feel represented uh to, to have a voice so aren't they sort of undermining the integrity of the act um Right. That that becomes less street art and just art. It sort of divorces itself from from where it's come from. Um, the, the reception of graffiti is not the only thing that's been changing, however, but media uses it in its execution as well. Right, Originally graffiti. Uh, sorry, the media, not the press, but the media used um, to actually make the marks uh, has has moved beyond permanent markers and paint uh they've grown into stickers sort of pre-made tags you probably if any modern city usually i see those um on you know crosswalks and and the the crossing lights and things like that if you've noticed right where they're smaller in size and stickers but you kind of see them more right then blending into the background uh but also things like pre-made posters which are otherwise known as wheat pastes i'm assuming that's the type of paste but you know that's affixed to walls much like um, you'd see bills and, and actual advertisements on construction sites in urban areas, right? Usually see no bills post here, but then somebody does. But usually I feel like those are reputable main companies that we know. But apparently um, some graffiti artists use that medium to to throw up a tag. I, w- I could see that being much faster, right? You like dip, throw the glue up there and you're done. You're not actually tagging. Which I'd be interested if that is seen in some way, because I I do think there's that transgressive risk of being able to tag and get away with it, I would think.
0: Might not be the same street credibility.
1: Yeah, exactly. I'm guessing. Okay, so trivia three, and just round us out here. Graffiti artists successfully did this for the first time in the 1970s A, tagged the Eiffel Tower, B, unionized c created indelible ink d sold graffiti for more than one million dollars eiffel tower unionized oh i thought it was gonna be three for three this week i know i i wrote that one a bit hard um but just wanted to see um yeah if unionized jumped out or not but um they did in fact unionize and i just
0: thought that would be impossible since it isn't a paying job so right and that it was done that
1: that earlier i would have i would have felt like unionized would have happened you know yesterday to, to be honest like it seems like a very modern thing for, for graffiti um but yeah apparently they unionized and in response to that i mentioned before right that it's difficult to kind of get through the 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 that is it sort of a glass ceiling it's sort of a, just a, a ceiling uh to break into the upper echelons in, in museum culture. But in response to that type of unionization, they really clamped down and only decided to elevate a very select few oh. in the space. So not as
0: Sounds like the wrong use of a
1: union, but okay. right. <laughs> <Good>. <laughs> well, the response to the union, I get. Yeah, exactly. All right, so to, to close out before I, I finish up completely, here is I wanted to read one thing that actually did, <laughs> did <laughs> sort of piss me off <laughs> um so it's a, a little different for me that usually I'm, I'm not presenting something like this but i'll explain a bit why i just hate this this way of looking at it um so this does i'm not a conservative in any in any way audience anyone has listened to previous um
0: i don't know you're uh, sounding a little conservative today mark well
1: not conservative um financially or in the need for societal communal networks and safety nets and 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 infrastructures but something like this pisses me off okay
0: um
1: and i'll I'll explain why now now i'm interested what you think Alison? okay so graffiti as praxis is an active encounter with the physical and material form of the city that attempts to make space social and public Through the promotion of use values and meaningful acts of inhabitation versus the homogenizing practices of planning, design, and commerce, and their overarching concern with surveillance, order, and security. That is, graffiti can be read as a means for reclaiming and remaking the city as a more humane social space by reflecting the meanings and values of those who inhabit and use the streets and public space of the city that counterbalance the dominating requirements of business.
0: Did a hipster doctoral student write that?
1: (laughs) And absolutely. It was absolutely a hipster doctoral <laughs> student, okay. So my biggest problem there is they polarize it. They, they, they pit this as this humanizing the space versus the requirements of business. And this is where I hate that business is held up as a negative thing that doesn't benefit anybody. What? Like that's ridiculous. Business is not some cold inhuman thing. It is created by people. It is run by people. It benefits people like (laughs) what? So, and and I hardly think that you you can say that the the people, the few who are doing a transgressive act of going out and putting graffiti up are representing the people of that neighborhood. Are you fucking kidding me? Like that I, that annoys the shit out of me. You are so making me laugh so
0: hard. I think we would need an entire like other episode, but I think they're probably saying business as a stand in for capitalism. And we could discuss like the evils of capitalism, which I do. I know you're you're much more of a capitalist than I am, uh, but there are some inherent evils there. And I guess they're just giving a nod to like, there are a lot of people who live in major cities who don't, you know, who don't benefit. Uh, from the main businesses, like think of New York, you know, banking being our main industry, right? And how many people don't benefit from that and are kind of unseen and unheard and all of that? But uh, but but as an overarching, like, is it representing all the people? It certainly is not. So I'll right. give you is that. It making it a that.
1: humane space reflecting the meanings and values of everyone that inhabits it because you have a big tag. Well, not everyone on someone's for sure. private right building. <laughs> no, <laughs> I don't think so, but. Anyway, provocative thing to throw out there. I'm glad. No, I respect and and of course, love to hear your other side of it. No, not really other side, but your take on it too. And I do, I understand that if you're saying business, meaning really broad capitalistic streaks that we could certainly debate, and I would see value in some of that. But, um, in but you're not buying presented. it. I know. I'm, I I'm not, buying, <laughs> not buying it. I actually end my notes with infuriating, period. Man. Anyway, so where I left off in my rabbit hole, um, I, I would love to take a, a deeper dive into that history of the pillars of hip hop and and understand a little bit more. It's something so far from from me, um, although I say that. And meanwhile, pop music has been so influenced by it. So to say that it's far from me is probably in itself an ignorant thing to say, because it can't be because it's been everywhere in, in our music for so long. Uh, and the other thing was something we'll post in our notes uh, is subway art and i have an uh, a link to um a uh amazon link that it was just updated is a book that was updated in 2016 but it was originally published in 1984 and was sort of seen as a very breakthrough um documentation of the nyc subway art scene and oh, they cool. consider it an art scene um so that's by uh, cooper and chalfant um, who wrote that, and then updated it in 2016. So I think that would be an interesting, right, like retrospective. So Absolutely. that's it. I, my big questions, which I'll save for later.
0: I love it. I I thank you for going down this avenue that I did not see coming. It was so interesting. And I'm glad you kind of ended when one of your two points was just about the hip hop culture from the 80s. So I was a huge fan of De La Soul and A Tribe Called Quest, late 80s, early 90s. And a lot of when you said that, when you were talking about the art, I was thinking, oh, yeah, a lot of their artwork on their albums and stuff was really graffiti influenced. Um, but I never really thought of it as being a pillar. And now I'm certainly going to be listening to De La Soul tonight and Tribe when we get off this. Uh, podcasts, <laughs> and I'll certainly put in our what to listen to um, some links uh, for any of you who aren't familiar. Absolutely. Uh, seminal hip hop music, but Mark, thank you. That was amazing. Absolutely. Okay. I went in a very different direction. <laughs> um, I can tell by
1: your just the heads. So I can't wait.
0: And, and uh, maybe not very linear. So apologies in advance. Uh, so um, I, I struggled with this one quite honestly. And I think because as we've mentioned a couple of times, the possibilities were so vast with an agentive noun. Did I get that mm-hmm. right? I
1: oh, think so. Mark,
0: Mark taught me something today. Um, So I'm someone who loves books and reading. Any of you who watch the podcast, instead of just listening, can probably tell from my surroundings. It's a little dark today, but I have a giant bookcase behind me. (laughs) That is my bookcase. Um, I was really blessed. I was born to parents who loved reading and books. And they really instilled that in my brother and me from from a very early age. They taught us to read before we were even in kindergarten. Um, That's how important it was to them. And, And I was further blessed because my dad worked in publishing. So we always had access to free books, you know, advanced reader copies and that sort of thing. He worked with libraries, so he was um, responsible for kind of like reviewing books for libraries. So a lot of books came his way. I must have been about six or so when I found out that outside of the library, most people had to pay for books. I, I was horrified. I was so upset that like these magical items weren't just available to everyone for free. Like, how could you make people pay for books? absolutely like the first time the scales fell from my eyes probably about anything in my life um so i was so excited when we got this word but then i found it really hard how am i going to tie this all together with like my love of it uh but i found a quote from carl sagan when i was researching for this episode which is really interesting since i wasn't expecting carl sagan whom i've mentioned in other episodes right on other topics to be relevant to this one but there he was perfectly summing things up. And I'm such a huge fan of his. So I was really happy. And and here's the quote. A book is made from a tree. It is an assemblage of flat, flexible parts, still called leaves imprinted with dark pigmented squiggles. One glance at it and you hear the voice of another person, perhaps someone dead for thousands of years. Across the millennia, the author is speaking clearly and silently inside your head directly to you. Writing is perhaps the greatest of human inventions, binding together people, citizens of distant epochs who never knew one another. Books break the shackles of time, proof that humans can work magic. And I thought that was so beautiful. He he says this in an episode of Cosmos from the eighties, uh, called "The Persistence of Memory." And I'll I'll link that. I did I did find the video to actually watch. Uh, I think Sagan was probably inspired to this by Galileo, who actually once wrote. So all the way back, uh, our very first episode, Orbit. Mark talked a lot about Galileo. Galileo once wrote what sublimity of mind was his who dreamed of finding means to communicate his deepest thoughts to any other person, though distant by mighty intervals of place and time. It's this idea of books connecting us through time and space. And um, when I came across across it, I was just in awe, right? It, It so perfectly sums it up. We can time travel with books. They're magical. So, as humans were evolving, as with any species, our genes held and conveyed the knowledge we needed for survival, our, our innate instincts. Um, and then the brain started to develop from our primitive reptilian brain, which is still part of our brain that, that part of our brain that has like the base kind of reactions of um, fear and anger and that sort of thing, like basic survival. We needed I want, to. Hold, I might butcher it. Yeah. The amygdala.
1: Thalamus, I like forget the, which
0: one. The base oh, yeah.
1: of the brain, the older yes, part. Yes, yeah, exactly. Of it's
0: right at the <laughs> base. And then our more advanced brain kind of grew on top of it.
1: Medulla. But uh, it's embossed. still, anyway, it's still
0: in there. <laughs> um, but we needed to hold more information, right? As we developed. And because we needed more space for all of this survival mm-hmm. knowledge. Um, and Sagan talks about this. Um, and then at some point... We needed writing, right? We needed to hold and convey even more information. Our oral tradition, language was developing, but our oral tradition just couldn't keep up. This eventually leads to writing and to libraries. So how did writing come to be? I was sure Mark was gonna go down this path and talk about the history of writing. So um, as far as we've yet discovered, writing started with, um, I'm gonna say cuneiform, but some people say cuneiform, but of, I've, there I've only heard
1: cuneiform, but yeah.
0: Yeah, me too. But then I saw videos where people were saying cuneiform. So I looked it up and it seems to be a debate. But so cuneiform, which was developed in Mesopotamia about 3400 BCE, basically etchings made onto bone or rock. Um, and almost all of these were like recording events, like transactions, literally like trading grain, who traded what or the, you know, heroics of a king. You know, it was b- very much recording things. And then in Egypt, about 200 years later, we see hieroglyphics developing. In China, we see writing by 1300 BC. And in Mesoamerica, we see writing systems appear by like 900 BCE. So like historians right now think writing kind of developed four different places, right? Four four separate places that happened. Um, and then this of course spreads. And by the mid 1400s, Johannes Gutenberg creates arguably the most important thing, important um invention in history the printing press So movable type. Now, interestingly, movable type was actually invented in China, of course, around 1040, uh, but it was porcelain. But Johannes Gutenberg creates the printing press a mechanical device that can print out multiple pieces of the same thing. So before this, anything written, books and manuscripts was of course done by hand. um, And then were hand copied. In in Western world, at least often by monks who would hand copy uh, manuscripts to, to preserve them. Um, over and over again, it created a lot of mistakes so you can actually track when, when manuscripts have survived, how things have changed. And these were, of course, there were so few of them, they're only available to a few elite. But after the printing press, books and learning were available to anyone who could read. So this amazing development that suddenly, if you could read, um, the masses could could start to be educated. And this, of course, leads to the immense importance of writers. Somebody had to be writing things for all of this to spread. So scholars and artists who documented their thoughts and their ideas and their fantasies that others in their time and beyond, as Sagan points out, could read and learn from and build on and build from. And what I mean by that is written material allows human species to gain knowledge that helps them create material things, like literally build from. And Mark, you mentioned in one of our earlier episodes, I think it was your big question, like what happens if the world is some huge natural disaster and libraries are destroyed? How do we how do we know how to build a water wheel? Like, how do we know how to build the things that none of us know how to do anymore? So, so, you know, writers write that down and give us that. But it also just helps people sort of new imaginary places and make new connections that lead to new inventions and connections that lead to a drawing together of humanity. And I know this sounds super like airy-fairy, namby-pamby, blah, blah, blah. But it really is like this resounding message that we are all connected. And James Baldwin he has an amazing quote. He once said, You think your pain and your heartbreak are unprecedented in the history of the world, but then you read. It was books that taught me that the things that tormented me most were the very things that connected me with all the people who were alive, who had ever been alive. And the importance of that, so besides being able to build a water wheel, to realize in this more like humanistic level how connected we are I think is just of unparalleled importance and Kurt Vonnegut who's one of my favorite writers in the world um, has said I believe that reading and writing are the most nourishing forms of meditation anyone has so far found by reading the writings of the most interesting minds in history we meditate with our own minds and theirs as well and this to me is a miracle." So the words of others, they educate, they soothe, they enlighten, they uplift. And like I said, it's not just this ethereal feel good stuff here. It's, you know, writers throughout history have also been at the heart of rebellions. Uh, Many of the leaders of the 1960, 16, excuse me, Easter uh, um, rising in Ireland against um, British rule were writers and poets. Like I think the majority of the leaders in fact, Um, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, who is a Colombian writer, was a Colombian writer. He started his career as a journalist and then he became a renowned novelist. Many of his topics focused on the corruption of um, previous Colombian regimes. And he was an activist. He, He actively negotiated for hostage release and this activism was tied to his writing and he used his voice to educate others and to get others to join his cause. And of course, speaking of journalists, Even today, there are many all over the world who risk their lives daily to bring news to people in defiance of dictatorial governments. One example from recent years, of course, is Jamal Khashoggi who was murdered by the Saudi government. Um, So this is my love letter. This is my love letter to the writers of the world, past, present and future. Just thank you for your words and your ideas and your inspiration and your comfort. Thank you for creating worlds that shy or lonely or abused children can escape into. And thank you for saying what so many of us think or feel but can't adequately express. And thank you especially to all of those standing on the front lines. Um, Thank you to all of these writers creating an unbroken line throughout time, allowing us the magic of time travel. And that is my short and sweet love letter to writers.
1: I love it. It's beautiful and poetic that you have written right something that therefore that itself lives on right to your point the fact that you will find that in a drawer or on your computer in another 20 years or the fact that then that you know just to really go down the rabbit hole with it we know that we transcribe our own um episodes so although we're speaking and this is a visual thing right now right in another two few days we will have another written print so to speak a, a duplication of what you just said right so it propagates itself which i think is, is amazing thank you for that Allison that's great yeah and i'm really yeah. happy that yeah to to contrast the direction i went you you gave us that history of the the writer uh, we sort of switched places in, in a little bit of a way actually this week <laughs> now that i think about it um excellent Very all right nice. hit
0: me with a big question mark
1: uh yeah and it's funny i was just sort of um I scribbled one down, a second big question in response to yours. So I love it when, um, when, you know, your rabbit hole makes me think of a a new question that I didn't have coming into this week. So that's great. So if our society afforded each individual, a means to feel seen, to feel heard, and to feel a sense of accomplishment, industry, and praise, would graffiti never have existed? Mm, that's a good question right second second like uh, uh epilogue to that or will there always be a human rebellion against communal order and the dominance of a rule of law
0: yeah like i kind of feel like that like the latter there will always be this need and i i think there are probably multiple drivers behind graffiti you know you you talked about um different pieces of the kind of story of graffiti but you have people who just need an outlet um you have people who want to express themselves artistically and this is how they do it because they don't have supplies to do it any other way they're not going to art school that sort of thing you have people who do it because it is a statement it is saying i'm gonna make a mark here in this city that is cold and you know uncaring and i don't feel like you know cares about me right. at all so I do think probably just with the history of humans wanting to leave their mark going back to the cave paintings like you talked about my guess is it would probably still exist but what do you think
1: I'm I'm torn I'm I'm proud of the question I think because I don't 100% know um I, I think most of me wants to react to it the way that I reacted to your story during our slab episode where i considered that civilization right that 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 group that that sprung up that way of living to be representative the representative of a failing of society so i i I think i think i'm i do think it would be greatly reduced and, and unnecessary because here's here's where as opposed to that drive in the past that you mentioned of leaving a mark on something, that may have been leaving a mark in a public, in an unowned space, a rock in the woods, a cave that that person was living in. That is a different than I think nowadays because I think what I do is I put myself in that split second. Well, they have to plan and go buy things and there's not a split second, but where they walk up, there is a split second sorry audience going back and forth but there is that moment where they're about to go up there's no one around they're not going to get caught they're able to tag and they cross they make the decision to reach out and touch property that is not theirs it is owned by someone often it can be a private building that's owned i think maybe sometimes they choose things that are public right or if it's very discursive if it's very targeted towards government things like that but and then they deface it. And so that's where I feel like if they were given, if they were nurtured in other ways to respect that someone else, that is someone else's thing, that's someone else's property. Just because you have a need to express, find other, you know, find healthier ways to do it. And I think that's where society has let them down to not respect the other person's property. And but it might be
0: a conscious choice to say, you know, the 1% have all of this. I want to white on somebody else's. It's not because I haven't been quote unquote taught better. It's because I'm trying to make a point, which I know you also don't support. I'm just throwing out there that it's not all about society failing them in, in, in the way you're talking about.
1: But no, no, I, I'm glad you're challenging it. Well, that's where I feel like if they feel seen and heard, like I think it's a broader, uh, yeah. I mean, we're not going to we're not going to solve it. We're That's the nature of it. our big questions. But yeah. if if they're seen, heard, more integrated into society, less of certainly less of the one percent. I think if other things are working as we would want an idealized society to, um, I think they would not need to define themselves in such a in this like f- this very shallow aesthetic way. I do see it as that way, right? Like something that means a bit more to them that isn't as ephemeral, that won't get washed off, that is respectful of the community around them. Um, that's where I struggle. <laughs> but anyway, big question for, for everyone to think about. Uh, and then just, we don't need to dig into it in the, in the interest of time, but in response to yours, right? Um, you mentioned that the writers throughout history were often those on the front lines of, of civil movements that left a mark and really changed things And you mentioned Ireland, but in many cultures throughout history. So, I feel like in the conglomeration and the consolidation of artists and writers behind things like big music labels, big publishing houses, uh, where there's less and less for the ability for an independent writer to really have a voice and a following. Are we there for a society really losing the disruptive and rebellious voices because of the, you needing to conform to the career of writing and therefore be represented by a larger organization, Mm. Um, you know, or, you know, A, is therefore there less of that commentary and less of that ability to be a gadfly and like a rogue influence?
0: Yeah, no, that's a great question. And I think probably yes, given the rise of something else you talked about, which so much now is like visual social media videos, like what we see, people get more news from that than reading. And so.
1: Oh, yeah, I wasn't even thinking. Yeah, yeah. of just the, like, the. I
0: don't think it negates it, but volume I think it's it it. less. Yeah. yeah, that is really interesting hmm. and terrifying.
1: <laughs> Sorry, I cheated and did two. So, by all means, no, that's if you good. Have two.
0: I actually have two as well. And I feel okay. like my piece was really short. So, I think I, I thought I could do two, but my first one is very small and quick and less serious. And then my second one's more serious. So, the first one, it's like definitely for you, Mark. Like, I want your opinion on this. Okay. Um, so, one of the types of writers I didn't talk about were entertainment writers. So, people who write screenplays, for instance, right? People who write plays, people who write movies. Um, there's an argument to be made that um, they're much more important than the actors, that they're much more talented than the actors. Now, I'm not saying that actors aren't important and that we don't have many very talented actors, but without the writing, without the power, without like a Tom Stoppard, say, right, a playwright that both Mark and I like, um, could you argue that the writer is actually more of the superstar when it comes to um, to a really powerful or important artistic piece than the actors. And Mark, having been both an actor and a playwright, I'm interested in your perspective. I think the probably the answers are both important, but I just wanted to see what you would say there.
1: Um they are both important. I think in the way that our yeah, I mean obviously not an easy question. And this is me loving you for asking that because it's a really good question. Um equally important important the way things have evolved i think in our culture now and our history yes i would say the writer is more important to the the creation of the piece existing like it, it wouldn't exist if someone didn't write it if someone didn't delve into the the dramatic question the conflict there there has to be an engine of A big question, right? With this section, right? There is usually a big question being battled out. And that writer has dedicated blood, sweat, and tears to making that work, to to exploring that question. Um, To your point, though, yeah, you need really talented people to have that be successful. You can have really great work, but have a terrible performance. And therefore, that work doesn't propagate. It doesn't move on and and get a following, at least nowadays, uh, because people aren't reading plays. If people read more plays, then I think those writers would be much higher um in esteem, right? Because the really the only way they're experiencing it is through performance, which I think in the past was less so. I think you had more people actually reading a play. Um right. because you couldn't go see them as much, probably. Right. Interesting. Um, so yeah, I would I would vote that because of that. If if um things had continued the way maybe they were way in the past where actors were in troops who composed often told things that weren't written down. The actors were Mm -hmm. telling stories or retelling stories. Then you almost didn't have that question because they refused. Right. Um, Yeah. I don't even know why I'm sharing that because it's not relevant because they did split and you, 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 you still have actor writers, but it's, it's less so right. And they're not usually off sometimes completely giving you an improvised full story you know from right start.
0: well Sorry, I ha- that's I convoluted
1: this... convoluted answer but i love it. no
0: that. it's not i loved it because again i don't think that there's any answer but i had this as my big question already and then a couple days ago i was listening to fresh air does a program on npr terry gross um and she or it wasn't her it was someone one of her colleagues interviewing f murray the the actor f murray abraham so he's currently has a role in the second season of White Lotus. If anyone watches that, I haven't seen it, but um he also he was just played...
1: nominated for uh, Emmy,
0: I think. Oh, uh, was he for that? I
1: think so. Yeah, because he was in the news and stuff for. Anyway, can finish your yeah. thought? And we'll talk about him.
0: Well, he also back in the day he played Salieri in the movie yes, Amadeus, he and did. he he won an Academy Award for that. And at some point, the interviewer brought that up, and I, I I'm not sure of all the details. I'll link this episode of Fresh Air. Um, in the on the website and in the notes. But he talked about winning that award. And that was also a play, a stage play at some point. Mm -hmm. And he noted that any actor who's played Salieri has won like some sort of award. And he was saying I think that's a tribute to the writing more than to me or to any of these actors, all of whom were fine actors. And it's funny because I'd already written this question and I was like oh my God, he he just like gave me this example. That is
1: wonderful. Yeah. Amadeus is an amazing play. Yeah, for sure.
0: Um okay, here's my second thing. And part of this is uh my I originally my entire thing was originally going to be about this brief little blurb I'm gonna tell you about and then I have a question and it's a much more serious thing. and I was like, yeah, it's just not enough. But there is a book, uh, of course we'll link it, uh, called The Badass Librarians of Timbuktu, uh, which I highly, highly recommend. And so <laughs> very, very like quick synopsis. So Timbuktu in Mali was the center of Islamic culture and scholarship in like the third to 16th centuries uh current era common era current era i always get that confused <laughs> oh i don't remember Well, uh, common uh, common common era um and so in more recent times uh timbuktu really became the center of the manuscript trade for all of these ancient manuscripts any of them that still existed and it was a place where scholars would restore you know preserve and restore hundreds of thousands of manuscripts uh from this time um and in 2012, I think, um, militant Islamists, Islamists backed by al-Qaeda arrive in Mali, th- start to threaten everything cultural. We've seen plenty of examples of this um, in other areas. And one of these things being threatened were these manuscripts... Because most of the manuscripts are really evidence of how a secular and religious blend of Islam was beautifully practiced in this region for hundreds of years. So something Al Qaeda wanted to destroy um, to kind of say, no, like the, the strict religious um, route is the only way. So there's one man named Abdel Qadir Hadara. He smuggled over 350,000 medieval manuscripts to safety. So he had already been working on gathering these and the book goes into great detail and it's fascinating on this. He would go out, a lot of these manuscripts were owned by families. They were buried in like backyards for safekeeping. He was gathering them and creating a library um, for all of these. So there'd be a place where people could go and study these and see these and they could be restored and protected. And then um, in comes um, the militant Islamists and he realizes these are gonna be destroyed. They're gonna loot, they're gonna raid, they're gonna burn. have to get out of Timbuktu. And so he undertakes with a lot of help, um, a mission to move all of these manuscripts out, um, packs them into trunks, they're smuggled out in donkey carts, they're, you know, crates of them are put on ships under tarps and all like kind of under the nose, of um the militant islamists since like in the dead of night and almost all of these have now made it to bamako and are safe and it is just this really beautiful like heroic effort to save manuscripts to save these writings you may not know this based
1: on your 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 research of it but i'm dying to know like for me it would have been yes you want to maintain the actual physical pieces sure but it felt like the most pressing thing is to document what they say. Like, I'm surprised the first, I mean, maybe it was, the first push to me would have been like, unroll them all, snap a digital pic, upload right. it to the cloud, right? Like, like just yeah. save it. So we have it. But I wonder. Yeah. Just And I don't know.
0: That no, that's actually a really <laughs> good point. There's the, the whole, the whole story of what he did before and after Um, You know, in terms of gathering them and just trying to preserve them and then having to get them out and save them. There's this one story that um, makes me tear up every time. Um, Like I said, he needed a lot of help from people. And a lot of locals um, in Mali feel like great pride that these manuscripts these like incredible, incredible scholarly works existed there, came from there and were preserved. So people were generally willing to help, often putting their own lives in danger to protect these books. And there's one story of an elderly man who kind of was posted on the road to watch, um, for the Islamists coming and to be lookout. Um, and he had a couple very close calls and he did survive this, but he was illiterate. He couldn't even read. And he was willing to put his life on the line because he understood that there was this importance to like Maintaining this for humanity. See, I'm like tearing up thinking about this because I yeah. think it's so beautiful. Uh, but I guess my big question is like, is preserving these physical things, which I didn't even think of it that way, Mark, but the way you just said it, is it worth putting someone's life in danger um, to do that for something like maintaining this knowledge? Again, unanswerable question, but I did want to share the story and I did want to kind of get your perspective where we should be drawing the line about. Putting
1: people's lives in
0: danger, which it was yeah. his choice to be clear. He I was just going to
1: start with, it's a choice. Like to force it on someone, no, I think that would be wrong. But if someone felt so compelled to balance their own life versus the benefit of that knowledge, because it's existing for a generation, for potentially infinite number of humans to see it in the future, I mean, that's a beautiful thing. I can see why it's emotional and um yeah uh for me i could see that being important just to make sure that it that the knowledge was preserved i guess in, in my opinion um maybe somebody would would feel the same for just the physical pieces but i feel like if somebody had to choose um am i gonna die f- to be able to I'm, I'm picturing like someone's raiding a location they might burn it kill them seize them and destroy the the physical pieces if someone was willing to to risk their life just to snap the pictures and upload it right through a probably a very weak internet signal or something wherever these things are out in the countryside being buried and you said backyards and things um how dramatic is that right uh just to to keep the the importance of the ideas there it's sort of related when you were talking before about um the history of writing, right? There's There are many ways to look at, to, to think that we didn't nest, <laughs> this is a weird way of looking at it, but I think it's why people, the true meaning of memes, of ideas acting like genes and finding a way to propagate themselves, you could almost be like, did we decide we needed writing or did the ideas need a vehicle to sustain themselves and that's that's, right no that's interesting (laughs) it's like they found a way through us to propagate and you had a big question like that
0: in one episode about like are we just agents of ideas that are right
1: that's right they need to be kept alive
0: so they're using us or something you had something really interesting like that
1: <laughs> right, but 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 what gets trippy about that is they don't exist without us, right? Us. So it's like,
0: yeah.
1: but they do become this weird connective tissue of 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 conscious like ah. ideas, right? It's very yeah, yeah it's, it's weird. Um, mm. I okay. love that. Now I answered that, but what about what is your thought on that? I'm, I'm sensing you are like, yes, it is worth it, of course. But I don't. Know.
0: I <laughs> I I think it's too hard to answer. I think what you said. I think um. I think it's a personal choice. And obviously that man decided it was worth it. And I, again, I just think it's so beautiful because he couldn't even read, right? So it was, oh, the, it was yeah. the philosophy of it. It was this idea that he understood that was important um, and was willing to risk his life for it and to stand up for something he believed in. So of course, I believe in standing up for what you believe in, even if it, even if your life is in danger. Yeah.
1: I really want to find out. I mean, they must have been scanned. They must. The, the knowledge must be saved somewhere.
0: I will research that just for you. <laughs> <laughs> okay so should we talk about where we came out rating wise
1: oh yeah let's do that
0: so you were at an eight
1: i was at an eight i really did go high um i'm gonna, I'm gonna drop down to a five um
0: entering it i stretch. you know
1: i enjoyed it i enjoyed Digging into it, I enjoyed that there was a surprising, very different angle that I, right, came about from looking at the Oxford English Dictionary and not realizing that they were considered writers. Like that's the term. And as a side note, if anyone's wondering a bit of why, I think it's largely comes from the first tags were often words, right? That these stylized. At least that's what I think of when I really think of graffiti. Right, is usually this the stylized, call, call, uh, calligraphic calligraphy uh, of, of a name or a a permutation of a name that someone's tagged. So they were writing text, which I think was one of the reasons why they were called a writer instead of like a painter or something like that. Hmm.
0: Interesting. Um, okay. Well, I was at a seven. So very close to you. I'm also going down to a five. Um, I, I, I loved, you know, I was so excited about the word and I'm so excited about books, obviously, but I, I struggled hard with this one. I must have rewritten this like three or four times. I was telling Mark, I came out to a place. I I, I wasn't even trying to write a love letter. Like I, I honestly was trying to go down very different directions. And I, I have to ask
1: to what sort of was mm-hmm. the, each time you restarted, what was the, the sort of the straw that broke the camel's back, so to speak? Like what, what made you say, no, I'm going to start again?
0: Well, I started with the Badass Librarians of Timbuktu, which I had read a number of years ago and thought this is it, this is such an amazing story. And uh, when I I actually reread it um, and then went, oh, it's such a great story, but it's not as focused on writers, right? It's on preserving the right thing. Like, I don't know how to get the right part in there because we don't know a lot about the actual original writers. Hmm. Um, a lot of them were anonymous. So it didn't it just didn't quite fit. And I thought, but I'll still work it in and I'll talk about like acts of like that old man standing up for himself. What else? And then I thought about, OK, let's talk about all the, let let me tell stories about um, the Easter rising in 1916 um, and Pierce and like just so many of the men who led that and were executed for it, um, how how they were writers and poets and journalists. And then I thought, okay, you know, I'll talk about Gabriel Garcia Marquez. I'll I'll talk about multiple people. And then I thought, well, those don't, the through line doesn't tie together enough. It's going to be like going in too many directions. So then I took a step back to go, let's look at the history of writing really, and see how writing, um, kind of brings us like through history and how it developed. And then we get to the printing press, which I do argue is the most important invention we've ever had, Um, but it just seemed a little too dry. And then I found the Sagan quote and I was like, this is it, this is it for me. This is the importance of writing. This is the importance of giving people written things on all these levels and and then i could tie in the piece of writing and then i threw in my right so then all these other pieces came together and it just became this like love letter to how much i appreciate that there are writers in the world that makes such a difference in how we think and how we feel the james baldwin quote like you never you might think you're the only person in the world who thinks something and then you read it and read someone else's words and go oh someone else just understood me so perfectly and that's priceless so so that was my very long meandering way so i'm gonna go five just because it was so difficult for me, but I still enjoyed it uh, and enjoy the process so much, but I enjoyed where I came out and everything I learned.
1: I love that you mentioned that, that part of how to experience and have moved beyond a sympathy to an actual empathy, because you're, you're experiencing your, what that other person was feeling. I think until we actually have some way to share someone else's physical emotion emotional sense writing is the closest you can get to being in someone else's shoes to being in their mind um so yeah that makes sense love it all right should i give us our word for next time you sh- our noun you shall all right everybody and rehearsal <laughs>
0: I'm laughing as we we're just talking about uh, writers. I know.
1: and Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and performance and acting and my background. And-
0: um. Oh, yeah. With your background, this is going to be interesting. Um. Rehearsal. OK, I'm going to give this. I- I'm going to go straight down the middle. I'm going to go with a five because I'm just not sure if it's like too similar or if I'm going to find some fascinating uh, new through line. All right. What about you?
1: Uh, six let's go with the six okay. i am quite split down on the middle i'm intrigued by i think i feel like a challenge to not right write, play the obvious based on my background um to see if there's there's some other thread there for me to pick up
0: play the obvious i like that. oh fun boom. what
1: follow the same old script
0: <laughs> oh, <laughs> wow. oh ouch okay it's definitely time to read us out
1: excellent All right. Well, thank you everyone very much. This has been another episode of the Renowned Podcast. Uh, If you enjoyed the show, please follow us and subscribe on whatever platform you are currently watching or listening to us on. Uh, You can usually follow and subscribe to it. Also, rating us uh, officially on the platforms helps us quite a bit to uh, gather some momentum for the show and reach a wider audience. We also invite you to please visit us on the web at renownedpodcast.com or on social media at renownedpodcast. And of course, tune in next week for a new episode uh, and a new noun, uh, either next week or the week after.
0: Yeah. And I just want to quickly add, um, you know, again, happy new year to everyone. And thank you for your patience as we went through our little hiatus, but we are back on board and we're really excited um, to bring you new episodes on a regular basis in 2023.
1: See you soon.